Harper Audio presents Thud by Terry Pratchett, performed by Stephen Briggs. The first thing Tack did, he wrote himself. The second thing Tack did, he wrote the laws. The third thing Tack did, he wrote the world. The fourth thing Tack did, he wrote a cave. The fifth thing Tack did, he wrote a geode, an egg of stone. And in the twilight of the mouth of the cave, the geode hatched, and the brothers were born. The first brother walked toward the light, and stood under the open sky. Thus he became too tall. He was the first man. He found no laws, and he was enlightened. The second brother walked toward the darkness, and stood under a roof of stone. Thus he achieved the correct height. He was the first dwarf. He found the laws Tack had written, and he was endarkened. But some of the living spirit of Tack was trapped in the broken stone egg, and it became the first troll, wandering the world unbidden and unwanted, without soul or purpose, learning or understanding. Fearful of light and darkness, it shambles forever in twilight, knowing nothing, learning nothing, creating nothing, being nothing. From Good Tack Gar, The Things Tack Wrote, translated Professor W. 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 Wildblood, Ankh-Morpork, Unseen University Press, 8 Ankh-Morpork Dollars. In the original, the last paragraph of the quoted text appears to have been added by a much later hand. Him who mountain crush, him know. Him who sun, him stop him know. Him who hammer, him break him know. Him who fire, him fear him know. Him who raise him head above him heart, him diamond. Translation of Troll Pictograms found carved on a basalt slab in the deepest level of the Ankh-Morpork treacle mines, in pig treacle measures estimated at five hundred thousand years old. Thud. That was the sound the heavy club made as it connected with the head. The body jerked and slumped back. And it was done, unheard, unseen, the perfect end, a perfect solution, a perfect story. But, as the dwarfs say, where there is trouble you will always find a troll. The Troll Saw It started out as a perfect day. It would soon enough be an imperfect one, he knew, but just for these few minutes it was possible to pretend that it wouldn't. Sam Vimes shaved himself. It was his daily act of defiance, a confirmation that he was, well, plain Sam Vimes. Admittedly, he shaved himself in a mansion, and while he did so, his butler read out bits from the Times, but they were just circumstances. It was still Sam Vimes looking back at him from the mirror. The day he saw the Duke of Ankh-Morpork in there would be a bad day. Duke was just a job description, that's all. Most of the news is about the current dwarfish situation, sir said Willikins, as Sam negotiated the tricky area under the nose. He still used his granddad's cutthroat razor. It was another anchor to reality. Besides, the steel was a lot better than the steel you got today. Sybil, who had a strange enthusiasm for modern gadgetry, kept on suggesting he get one of these new shavers, with a little magic imp inside that had its own scissors and did all the cutting very quickly. But Vimes had held out. If anyone was going to be using a blade near his face... It was going to be him. Combe Valley, Combe Valley, he muttered to his reflection. Anything new? Not as such, sir, said Willikins, turning back to the front page. There is a report of that speech by Grag Hamcrusher. There was a disturbance afterwards, it says. Several dwarfs and trolls were wounded. Community leaders have appealed for calm. Vimes shook some lather off the blade. Ha! I bet they have. Tell me, Willikins, did you fight much when you were a kid? Were you in a gang or anything? I was privileged to belong to the Shamlegger Street Rude Boys, sir, said the butler primly. Really? said Vimes, genuinely impressed. They were pretty tough nuts, as I recall. Thank you, sir, said Willikins smoothly. I pride myself I used to give somewhat more than I got. 
if we needed to discuss the vexed area of turf issues with the young men from Rope Street. Stevedore's hooks were their weapon of choice, as I recall. And yours? said Vimes, agog. A cap-brim sewn with sharpened pennies, sir. An ever-present help in times of trouble. Ye gods, man! You could put someone's eye out with something like that. With care, sir, yes. And here you stand now in your pinstripe trousers and butlering coat, shiny as schmaltz and fat as butter, Vimes thought, while he tidied up under the ears. And I'm a duke. How the world turns. And have you ever heard someone say, let's have a disturbance, he said. Never, sir. Me neither. It only happens in newspapers. Vimes glanced at the bandage on his arm. It had been quite disturbing, even so. Did it mention I took personal charge? he said. No, sir, but it does say here that rival factions in the street outside were kept apart by the valiant efforts of the watch, sir. They actually used the word valiant, said Vimes. Indeed they did, sir. Well, good, Vimes conceded grumpily. Do they record that two officers had to be taken to the free hospital, one of them quite badly hurt? Unaccountably not, sir, said the butler. Ha! Typical. Oh, well, carry on. Willikins coughed a butlery cough. You might wish to lower the razor for the next one, sir. I got into trouble with her ladyship about last week's little nick. Vimes watched his image sigh and lowered the razor. All right, Willikins, tell me the worst. Behind him the paper was professionally rustled. The headline on page three is, um, Vampire Officer for the Watch, sir, said the butler, and took a careful step backwards. Damn! Who told them? I really couldn't say, sir. It says you are not in favour of vampires in the watch, but will be interviewing a recruit today. It says there is a lively controversy over the issue. Turn to page eight, will you? said Vimes grimly. Behind him the paper rustled again. Well, he said, that's where they usually put their silly political cartoon, isn't it? You did put the razor down, did you, sir? said Willikins. Yes. Perhaps it would also be just as well if you stepped away from the wash basin too, sir. There's one of me, isn't there? said Vimes grimly. Indeed there is, sir. It portrays a small, nervous vampire, and, if I may say so, a rather larger-than-life drawing of yourself leaning over your desk, holding a wooden stake in your right hand. The caption is, Any good on a stakeout, eh? As, uh, this being a humorous wordplay referring on the one hand to the standard police procedure, Yes, I think I can just about spot it, said Vimes wearily. Any chance you could nip down and buy the original before Sybil does? Every time they run a cartoon of me, she gets hold of it and hangs it up in the library. Now, Mr. Um, Fizz does capture a very good likeness, sir, the butler conceded, and I regret to say that her ladyship has already instructed me to go down to the Times office on her behalf. Vimes groaned. Moreover, sir... Willikins went on. Her ladyship desired me to remind you that she and young Sam will meet at the studio of Sir Joshua at eleven sharp, sir. The painting is at an important stage, I gather. But I— She was very specific, sir. She said, if a commander of police cannot take time off, who can? On this day in 1802, the painter Methodia Rascal woke up in the night because the sounds of warfare were coming from a drawer in his bedside table. Again. One little light illuminated the cellar, which was to say that it lent different textures to the darkness and divided shadow from darker shadow. The figures barely showed up at all. It was quite impossible with normal eyes to tell who was talking. This is not to be talked about. Do you understand? Not talked about. He's dead. This is dwarf business. It's not to come to the ears of the city watch. They have no place here. Do any of us want them down here? They do have dwarf officers. Ha! Dugza! Too much time in the sun. They're just short humans now. Do they think dwarf? 
and vimes will dig and dig and wave the silly rags and tatters they call laws? Why should we allow such a violation? Besides, this is hardly a mystery. Only a troll could have done it, agreed? I said, are we agreed? That is what happened, said a figure. The voice was thin and old, and, in truth, uncertain. Indeed, it was a troll, said another voice, almost the twin of that one, but with a little more assurance. The subsequent pause was underlined by the ever-present sound of the pumps. It could only have been a troll, said the first voice. Is it not said that behind every crime you will find the troll? There was a small crowd outside the watch-house in Pseudopolis Yard when Commander Sam Vimes arrived at work. It had been a fine sunny morning up until then. Now it was still sunny, but nothing like as fine. The crowd had placards, Bloodsuckers Out, Vimes read, and No Fangs. Faces turned toward him with a sullen, half-frightened defiance. He uttered a bad word under his breath, but only just. Otto Treek, the Times iconographer, was standing nearby holding a sunshade and looking dejected. He caught Vimes' eye and trudged over. "'What's in this for you, Otto?' said Vimes. "'Come to get a picture of a jolly good riot, have you?' "'It's news, Commander,' said Otto, looking down at his very shiny shoes. "'Who tipped you off?' "'I just do the pictures, Commander,' said Otto, looking up with a hurt expression. "'Anyway, I couldn't tell you even if I knew, because of the freedom of the press.' "'Freedom to pour oil on a flame, do you mean?' Vimes demanded. "'That's freedom for you,' said Otto. "'No one said it was nice.' "'But, well, you're a vampire, too,' said Vimes, waving a hand toward the protesters. "'Do you like what's been stirred up?' "'It's still news, Commander,' said Otto meekly. Vimes glared at the crowd again. It was mostly human. There was one troll, although admittedly the troll had probably joined in on general principle, simply because something was happening. A vampire would need a masonry drill and a lot of patience before it could put a troll to any trouble. Still, there was one good thing, if you could call it that. This little sideshow took people's minds off Coombe Valley. "'It's strange they don't seem to mind you, Otto,' he said, calming down a little. "'Well, I'm not official,' said Otto. "'I do not have the sword on the badge. I do not threaten. I am just a working stiff, and I make some laugh.' Vimes stared at the man. "'He's never thought about that before, but yes.' Little fussy Otto in his red-lined black opera cloak with pockets for all his gear, his shiny black shoes, his carefully cut widow's peak, and not least his ridiculous accent that grew thicker or thinner depending on whom he was talking to, did not look like a threat. He looked funny, a joke, a music-hall vampire. It had never previously occurred to Vimes that, just possibly, the joke was on other people. Make them laugh, and they're not afraid. He nodded to Otto and went inside, where Sergeant Cheery Littlebottom was standing, on a box, at the high-duty officer's desk, her chevrons all shiny and new on her sleeve. Vimes made a mental note to do something about the box. Some of the dwarf officers were getting sensitive about having to use it. "'I think we could do with a couple of lads standing outside, Cheery,' he said. "'Nothing provocative, just little reminder to people that we keep the peace.' "'I don't think we'll need that, Mr. Vimes,' said the dwarf. I'm not interested in seeing a picture in the Times showing the Watch's first vampire recruit being mobbed by protesters, Corp. Sergeant, said Vimes severely. I thought you wouldn't be, sir, said Cheery. So I asked Sergeant Angua to fetch her. They came in the back way half an hour ago. She's showing her the building. I think they're down in the locker room. You asked Angua to do it, said Vimes, his heart sinking. Yes, sir, said Cheery, suddenly looking worried. Er... Uh, is there a problem? Vimes stared at her. She's a good, orderly officer, he thought. I wish I had two more like her. And she deserved the promotion, heavens knew. But, he reminded himself, she's from Uberwald, isn't she? She should have remembered about the thing between them and werewolves. Maybe it's my fault. I tell them that all coppers are coppers. What? Oh, no, he said. Probably not. A vampire and a werewolf in one room, he thought, as he headed on up the stairs to his office. Well, they'll just have to deal with it, and that'll just be the first of our problems. And I took Mr. Pessimal up to the interview room, Cherry called after him. Vimes stopped in mid-stair. 
Pessimal, he said. The government inspector, sir, said Cheery. The one you told me about. Oh, yes, thought Vimes. The second of our problems. It was politics. Vimes could never get a handle on politics, which was full of traps for honest men. This one had been sprung last week in Lord Vetinari's office at the normal daily briefing. Ah, Vimes, said his lordship as Vimes entered. So kind of you to come. Isn't it a beautiful day? Up until now, Vimes thought when he spotted the two other people in the room. You wanted me, sir, he said, turning to Vetinari again. There's a Silicon Anti-Defamation League march in Water Street, and I've got traffic backed up all the way to Least Gate. I'm sure it can wait, Commander. Yes, sir, that's the trouble, sir. That's what it's doing. Vetinari waved a languid hand. Full carts congesting the street vimes is a sign of progress, he declared. Only in the figurative sense, sir, said Vimes. Well, at any rate, I'm sure your men can deal with it, said Vetinari, nodding to an empty chair. You have so many of them now. Such an expense. Do sit down, Commander. Do you know Mr. John Smith? The other man at the table took the pipe out of his mouth and gave Vimes a smile of manic friendliness. I don't believe we have had the pleasure, he said, extending a hand. It should not be possible to roll your W's, but John Smith managed it. Shake hands with a vampire, not bloody likely, Vimes thought, not even one wearing a badly hand-knitted pullover. He saluted instead. Pleased to meet you, sir, he said crisply, standing to attention. It really was an awful garment, that pullover. It had a queasy zigzag pattern in many strange, unhappy colours. It looked like something knitted as a present by a colour-blind aunt, the sort of thing you wouldn't dare throw away in case the garbage collectors laughed at you and kicked your trash cans over. Vimes, Mr. Smith is, Vetinari began, President of the Ankh-Morpork Mission of the Oberwald League of Temperance, said Vimes, and I believe the lady next to him to be Mrs. Doreen Winkings, Treasurer of Same. This is about having a vampire in the watch, isn't it, sir? Again. Yes, Vimes, it is, said Vetinari. And yes, it is again. Shall we all be seated, Vimes? There was no escape, Vimes knew, as he sagged resentfully into a chair, and this time he was going to lose. Vetinari had cornered him. Vimes knew all the arguments for having different species in the watch. They were good arguments. Some of the arguments against them were bad arguments. There were trolls in the watch, plenty of dwarfs, one werewolf, three golems, and Igor, and, not least, Corporal Nobbs. This was a bit of a slur on Nobby, Vimes had to admit. Like many other officers, Nobby was human. It was just that he was the only one who had to carry a certificate to prove it. So why not a vampire? And the League of Temperance was a fact. Vampires wearing the League's black ribbon, not one drop, were a fact too. Admittedly, vampires who had sworn off blood could be a bit weird, but they were intelligent and clever and, as such, a potential asset to society. And the watch was the most visible arm of government in the city. Why not set an example? Because, said Vimes's battered but still functional soul, you hate bloody vampires. No messing about, no dissembling, no weasel words about the public won't stand for it or it's not the right time. You hate bloody vampires and it's your bloody watch. The other three were staring at him. Mr. Vimes, said Mrs. Winkings, we cannot help but notice that you still have not employed any of our members in the watch. Say watch, why don't you, Vimes thought. I know you can. Let the twenty-third letter of the alphabet enter your life. Ask Mr. Smith for some. He's got more than enough. Anyway, I have a new argument. It's copper-bottomed. Mrs. Winkins, he said aloud, no vampire has applied to join the watch. They're just not mentally suited to a copper's way of life. And it's Commander Vimes, thank you. Mrs. Winkins's little eyes gleamed with righteous malice. Oh, so you are saying vampires are stupid, she said. No, Mrs. Winkins, I'm saying they're intelligent, and there's your problem right there. Why would a clever person want to risk getting their, uh, their head kicked in on a daily basis for $38 a month plus allowances? Vampires have got class, 
education, a von in front of their name. There's a hundred better things for them to be doing than walking the streets as a cop. What do you want me to do? Force them to join the force? Wouldn't they be offered officer rank? said John Smith. There was sweat on his face, and his permanent smile was manic. Rumour had it that he was finding the pledge very hard going. No, everyone starts on the street, said Vimes. That wasn't entirely true, but the question had offended him. And on the night watch, too. Good training. The best there is. A week of rainy nights with the mists coming up and the water trickling down your neck and odd noises in the shadows. Well, that's when we find out if we've got a real copper. He knew it as soon as he said it. He'd walked right into it. They must have found a candidate. Well, that is good news, said Mrs. Winkings, leaning back. Vimes wanted to shake her and shout, You're not a vampire, Doreen. You're married to one, yes, but he didn't become one until a time when it is beyond human imagining that he could possibly have wanted to bite you. All the real black ribboners try to act normal and unobtrusive. No flowing cloaks, no sucking, and definitely no ripping the underwired nightdresses off young ladies. Everyone knows John Not-A-Vampire-At-All Smith used to be Count Vargo St. Gruet von Villainous, but now he smokes a pipe and wears those horrible woolen sweaters, and he collects bananas and makes models of human organs out of matchsticks because he thinks hobbies make you more human. But you, Doreen, you were born in Cockbill Street. Your mum was a washerwoman. No one would ever rip your nightdress off, not without a crane. But you're so... into this, right? It's a damned hobby. You try to look more like vampires than vampires do. Incidentally, those fake pointy teeth rattle when you talk. Vimes? Huh? Vimes became aware that people had been speaking. Mr. Smith has some good news, said Vetinari. Indeed, yes, said John Smith, beaming manically. We have a recruit for you, Commander. A vampire who wants to be in the watch. And, of course, the knight will not present a problem, said Doreen triumphantly. We are the knight. Are you trying to tell me that I must... Vimes began. Veterinary cut in quickly. Oh, no, Commander, we all fully respect your autonomy as head of the watch. Clearly you must hire whomsoever you think fit. All I ask is that the candidate is interviewed in a spirit of fairness. Yeah, right, thought Fimes, and politics with Uberwald will become just that bit easier, won't it, if you can say you even have a black ribboner in the watch. And if I turn this man down, I'll have to explain why. And I just don't like vampires, okay, probably won't do. Of course, he said. Send him along. He is, in fact, she, said Lord Vetinari. He glanced down at his paperwork. Salacia della Resista Amanita Trigestatra Zeldana Malafi... He paused, turned over several pages, and said, I think we can skip some of these, but the end von Humperding. She is fifty-one, but, he added quickly before Vimes could seize on this revelation, that is no age at all for a vampire. Oh, and she'd prefer to be known simply as Sally. The locker room wasn't big enough. Nothing like big enough. Sergeant Angua tried not to inhale. A large hall, that was fine. The open air, even better. What she needed was room to breathe. More specifically, she needed room not to breathe vampire. Damn cheery. But she couldn't have refused. That would have looked bad. All she could do was grin and bear it and fight down a pressing desire to rip out the girl's throats with her teeth. She must know she's doing it, she thought. They must know that they exude this air of effortless ease, confident in any company, at home everywhere, making everyone else feel second-class and awkward. Oh, my! Call me Sally, indeed. Sorry about this, she said aloud, trying to force the hairs on the back of her neck not to rise. It's a bit close in here, she coughed. Anyway, this is it. Don't worry, it always smells like this in here. And don't bother to lock your locker, all the keys are the same, and anyway, most of the doors spring open if you hit the frame in the right way. 
Don't keep valuables in it. This place is too full of coppers. And don't get too upset when someone puts holy water or a wooden stake in there. Is that likely to happen? said Sally. Not likely, said Angua. Certain. For instance, I used to find dog collars and bone-shaped biscuits in mine. But didn't you complain? What? No, you don't complain, snapped Angua, wishing she could stop inhaling right now. Already she was sure her hair was a mess. But I thought the watch was... Look, it's nothing to do with what you... What we are, okay? said Angua. If you were a dwarf, it'd be a pair of platform soles or a stepladder or something, although that doesn't happen so much these days. Mostly they try it on everyone. It's a copper thing, and then they'll watch what you do, you see? No one cares if you're a troll or a gnome or a zombie or a vampire. Much, she added to herself, but don't let them believe you're a whiner or a snitch. And actually the biscuits were pretty good, to tell you the truth. Ah, have you met Igor yet? Many times, said Sally. Angua forced a smile. In Uberwald you met Igors all the time, especially if you were a vampire. The one here, though, she said. I don't think so. Ah, that was a relief. Angua normally avoided Igor's laboratory, because the smells that emanated therefrom were either painfully chemical or horribly, suggestively organic, but now she'd snuff them up with relief. She headed to the door with slightly more speed than politeness required and knocked. It creaked open. Any door opened by an Igor would creak. It was a knack. Hi, Igor, said Sally cheerfully. Give me six. Angua left them chatting. Igors were naturally servile, vampires were naturally not. It was an ideal match. At least she could go and get some air now. The door opened. Mr. Pessimble, sir, said Cheery, ushering in a man not much taller than she was into Vimes's office. And here's the office copy of the Times. Mr. Pessimble was neat. In fact, he went beyond neat. He was a folding kind of person. His suit was cheap but very clean. His little boots sparkled. His hair gleamed, too, even more than the boots. It had a centre parting, and had been plastered down so severely that it looked as though it had been painted on his head. All the city's departments got inspected from time to time, Veterinari had said. There was no reason why the watch should be passed over, was there? It was, after all, a major drain on the city coffers. Vimes had pointed out that a drain was where things went to waste. Nevertheless, Betinari had said, just nevertheless. You couldn't argue with nevertheless. And the outcome was Mr. Pessimal walking toward Vimes. He twinkled as he walked. Vimes couldn't think of another way to describe it. Every move was, well, neat. Shovel, purse, and spectacles on a ribbon, I'll bet, he thought. Mr. Pessimal folded himself onto the chair in front of Vimes's desk and opened the clasps of his briefcase with two little snaps of doom. With some ceremony, he donned a pair of spectacles. They were on a black ribbon. Uh, "'My letter of accreditation from uh, Lord Veterinary, Your Grace,' he said, handing over a sheet of paper. "'Thank you, Mr. A. E. Pessimal,' said Vimes, glancing at it and putting it on one side. "'And how can we help you? It's Commander Vimes when I'm at work, by the way.' "'I will need an office, Your Grace, uh, and an oversight of all your paperwork.' As you know, I am tasked to give His Lordship a complete overview and cost-benefit analysis of the watch, with any suggestions for improvement in every aspect of its activities. Your cooperation is appreciated, but not essential. Suggestions for improvement, eh? said Vimes cheerfully, while behind A.E. Pessimal's chair, Sergeant Littlebottom shut her eyes in dread. Jolly good. I've always been known for my cooperative attitude. I did mention about the Duke thing, did I? Uh, yes, Your Grace, said A.E. Pessimal primly. Nevertheless, you are Duke of Ankh-Morpork, and it would be inappropriate to address you in any other way. I would feel disrespectful. I see. And how shall I address you, Mr. Pessimal? said Vimes. Out of the corner of his eye he saw a floorboard on the other side of the room lift almost imperceptibly. A.E. Pessimal will be quite acceptable, Your Grace, said the inspector. The A standing for, Vimes said, taking his eyes off the board for a moment. Just A, Your Grace, said A.E. Pessimal patiently. A.E. Pessimal. You mean you weren't named, you were initialed? Just so, Your Grace, 
said the little man calmly. What do your, what do your friends call you? A. E. Pessimal looked as though there was one major assumption in that sentence that he did not understand, so Vimes took a small amount of pity on him. Well, Sergeant Littlebottom here will look after you, he said with fake joviality. Find Mr. A. E. Pessimal an office somewhere, Sergeant, and let him see any paperwork he requires. As much as possible, Vimes thought. Bury him in the stuff if it keeps him away from me. Thank you, Your Grace, said A. E. Pessimal. I shall need to interview some officers, too. Why? said Vimes. To ensure that my report is comprehensive, Your Grace. I can tell you anything you need to know, said Vimes. Yes, Your Grace, but that is not how an inquiry works. I must act completely independently. Quis custodiet ipsos custodes, uh, Your Grace? I know that one, said Vimes. Who watches the watchman? Me, Mr. Pessimal. Ah, oh, but who watches you, Your Grace? said the inspector with a brief little smile. I do that too, all the time, said Vimes. Believe me. Uh, quite so, Your Grace. Nevertheless, I must represent the public interest here. I shall try not to be obtrusive. Very good of you, Mr. Pessimal, said Vimes, giving up. He hadn't realised he'd been upsetting Betanari so much lately. This felt like one of his games. All right, enjoy your hopefully brief stay with us. Do excuse me, this is a busy morning, what with the damned Coombe Valley thing and everything. Come in, Fred. That was a trick he'd learned from Vetinari. It was hard for a visitor to hang on when their replacement was in the room. Besides, Fred sweated a lot in his hot weather. He was a champion sweater. And in all these years he'd never worked out that when you stood outside the office door, the long floorboard seesawed slightly on the joist and rose just where Vimes could notice it. The piece of floorboard settled again, and the door opened. "'Don't know how you do it, Mr. Vames,' said Sergeant Colon cheerfully. "'I was just about to knock.' "'After you'd had a decent earful,' thought Vimes. He was pleased to see A. E. Pessimal's nose wrinkle, though. "'What's up, Fred?' he said. "'Oh, don't worry, Mr. Pessimal was just leaving. Carry on, Sergeant Littlebottom. Good morning, Mr. Pessimal.' Fred Colon removed his helmet as soon as the inspector had been ushered away by Cheery and wiped his forehead. It's heating up out there again, he said. We're in for thunderstorms, I reckon. Yes, Fred, and you wanted what exactly, said Vimes, contriving to indicate that while Fred was always welcome, just now was not the best of times. Er, uh, something big's going down on the street, sir, said Fred earnestly, in the manner of one who had memorised the phrase. Vimes sighed. Fred, do you mean something's happening? Yes, sir, it's the dwarfs, sir. I mean the lads here. It's got worse. They keep going into huddles. Everywhere you look, sir, there's huddling going on. Only they stops as soon as anyone else comes close. Even the sergeants. They stops and gives you a look, sir. And that's making the trolls edgy, as you might expect. We're not going to have Coombe Valley replayed in this nick, Fred, said Vimes. I know the city's full of it right now, what with the anniversary coming up, but I'll drop like a ton of rectangular building things on any copper who tries a bit of historical recreation in the locker room. He'll be out on his ass before he knows it. Make sure everyone understands that. Yes, sir, but I ain't talking about all that stuff, sir. We all know about that, said Fred Colon. This is something different, fresh today. It feels bad, sir. Makes my neck tingle. The dwarfs know something, something they ain't seen. Vimes hesitated. Fred Colon was not the greatest gift to policing. He was slow, stolid, and not very imaginative. But he'd plodded his way around the streets for so long that he'd left a groove, and somewhere inside that stupid, fat head was something very smart that sniffed the wind and heard the buzz and read the writing on the wall, admittedly doing the last bit with its lips moving. Probably it's just that damn ham-crusher who's got them stirred up again, Fred, he said. I hear them mentioning his name in their lingo, yes, sir, but there's more to it elsewhere. I mean, they looked really uneasy, sir. It's something important, sir, I can feel it in my water. Vimes considered the admissibility of Fred Colon's water as Exhibit A. It wasn't something you'd want to wave around in a court of law, but the gut feeling of an ancient street monster like Fred counted for a lot one copper to another. He said, "'Where's Carrot?' "'Off, sir. He pulled the swing shift and the morning shift down at Treacle Main Road. Everyone's doing double shifts, sir,' Fred Colon added reproachfully. 
Sorry, Fred, you know how it is. Look, I'll get him on it when he comes in. He's a dwarf. He'll hear the buzz. I think he may be just a wee bit too tall to hear this buzz, sir, said Colon in an odd voice. Vimes put his head on one side. What makes you say that, Fred? Fred Colon shook his head. Just a feeling, sir, he said. He added, in a voice tinged with reminiscence and despair, It was better when there was just you and me and Nobby and the lad Carrot, eh? We all knew who was who in the old days. We knew what one another was thinking. Yeah, we was thinking I wish the odds were on our side just for once, Fred, said Vimes. Look, I know this is getting us all down, right? But I need you senior officers to tough it out, OK? How'd you like your new office? Colon brightened up. Very nice, sir. Shame about the door, course. Finding a niche for Fred Colon had been a problem. To look at him, you'd see a man who might well, if he fell over a cliff, have to stop and ask directions on the way down. You had to know Fred Colon. The newer coppers didn't. They just saw a cowardly, stupid, fat man, which, to tell the truth, was pretty much what was there. But it wasn't all that was there. Fred had looked retirement in the face and didn't want any. Vimes had got around the problem by giving him the post of custody officer, to the amusement of all. As in, old Fred thought he said custard officer and volunteered. Since this is an example of office humour, it doesn't actually have to be funny. And an office in the watch training school across the alley, which was much better known as, and probably would forever be known as, the old lemonade factory. He'd thrown in the job of watch liaison officer because it sounded good and no one knew what it meant. Vimes had also given him Corporal Nobbs, who was another awkward dinosaur in today's watch. It was working, too. Nobby and Colon had a street-level knowledge of the city that rivalled Vimes's own. They ambled about, apparently aimlessly and completely unthreatening, and they watched and they listened to the urban equivalent of the jungle drums. And sometimes the drums came to them. Once, Fred's sweaty little office had been the place where bare-armed ladies had mixed up great batches of sarsaparilla and raspberry lava and ginger pop. Now the kettle was always on, and it was open house for all his old mates, ex-watchmen and old cons, sometimes the same individual, and Vimes happily signed the bill for the doughnuts consumed when they dropped by to get out from under their wife's feet. It was worth it. Old coppers kept their eyes open and gossiped like washerwomen. In theory, the only problem in Fred's life right now was his door. The Historians Guild say we've got to preserve as much of the old fabric as possible, Fred, said Vimes. I know that, sir, but, well, the twaddle room, sir, I mean, really. Nice brass plate, though, Fred, said Vimes. It's what they called the basic soft drink syrup, I'm told. Important historical fact. You could stick a piece of paper over the top of it. We do that, sir, but the lads pull it off and snigger. Vimes sighed. Sort it out, Fred. If an old sergeant can't sort out that sort of thing, the world has become a very strange place. Is that all? Will? Yes, sir, really, but... Come on, Fred, it's going to be a busy day. Have you ever heard of Mr. Shane, sir? Do you clean stubborn surfaces with it? said Vimes. Eh, uh, what, sir? said Fred. No one did perplexed better than Fred Colon. Vimes felt ashamed of himself. Sorry, Fred, no, no, I haven't heard of Mr. Shine. Why? Oh, nothing, really. Mr. Shane, im diamond. Seen it on walls a few times lately. Troll graffiti. You know, carved in deep. Seems to be causing a buzz among the trolls. Important, maybe? Vimes nodded. You ignored the writing on the walls at your peril. Sometimes it was the city's way of telling you, if not what was on its bubbling mind, then at least what was in its creaking heart. Well... Keep listening, Fred. I'm relying on you not to let a buzz become a sting, said Vimes with extra cheerfulness to keep the man's spirits up. And now I've got to see our vampire. Best of luck, Sam. I think it's going to be a long day. Sam, thought Vimes as the old sergeant went out. Gods know he's earned it, but he only calls me Sam when he's really worried. Well, we all are. We're waiting for the first shoe to drop. Vimes unfolded the copy of the Times that Cheery had left on his desk. He always read it at work, 
to catch up on the news that Willikins had thought it unsafe to hear whilst shaving. Coombe Valley, Coombe Valley. Vimes shook out the paper and saw Coombe Valley everywhere. Bloody, bloody Coombe Valley. God's damn the wretched place, although obviously they already had done so. Damned it and then forsaken it. Up close it was just another rocky wasteland in the mountains. In theory it was a long way away, but it seemed to be getting a lot closer lately. Coombe Valley wasn't really a place now, not any more. It was a state of mind. If you wanted the bare facts, it was where the dwarfs had ambushed the trolls, and or the trolls had ambushed the dwarfs, one ill-famed day under unkind stars. Oh, they'd fought one another since creation, as far as Vimes understood it, but at the Battle of Coombe Valley that mutual hatred became, as it were, official, and, as such, had developed a kind of mobile geography. Where any dwarf fought any troll, there was Coombe Valley. Even if it was a punch-up in a pub, it was Coombe Valley. It was part of the mythology of both races, a rallying cry, the ancestral reason why you couldn't trust those short-bearded, big rocky bastards. There had been plenty of such Coombe Valleys since that first one. The war between the dwarfs and the trolls was a battle of natural forces, like the war between the wind and the waves. It had a momentum of its own. Saturday was Coombe Valley Day, and Ankh-Morpork was full of trolls and dwarfs, and you know what? The further trolls and dwarfs got from the mountains, the more that bloody, bloody Coombe Valley mattered. The parades were okay. The watch had gotten good at keeping them apart, and anyway, they were in the morning when everyone was still mostly sober. But when the dwarf bars and the troll bars emptied out in the evening, hell went for a stroll with its sleeves rolled up. In the bad old days, the watch would find business elsewhere, and only turned up when stewed tempers had run their course. Then they'd bring out the hurry-up wagon and arrest every troll and dwarf too drunk, dazed or dead to move. It was simple. That was then. Now there were too many dwarfs and trolls. No, mental correction. The city had been enriched by vibrant growing communities of dwarfs and trolls. And there was more, yes, call it venom in the air. Too much ancient politics, too many chips handed down from shoulder to shoulder. Too much boozing, too. And then, just when you thought it was as bad as it could be, up popped Grag Hamcrusher and his chums. Deep downers, they were called, dwarfs as fundamental as the bedrock. They'd turned up a month ago, occupied some old house in Treacle Street, and had hired a bunch of local lads to open up the basements. They were Grags. Vimes knew just enough dwarfish to know that Grag meant renowned master of dwarfish law, but Hamcrusher had mastered it in his own special way. He preached the superiority of dwarf over troll, and that the duty of every dwarf was to follow in the footsteps of their forefathers and remove troll kind from the face of the world. It was written in some holy book, apparently, so that made it okay and probably compulsory. Young dwarfs listened to him because he talked about history and destiny and all the other words that always got trotted out to put a gloss on slaughter. It was heady stuff, except that brains weren't involved. Malign idiots like him were the reason you saw dwarfs walking around now not just with the cultural battle-axes, but heavy mail, chains, morning-stars, broadswords, all the dumb, in-your-face swaggering that was known as clang. Trolls listened, too. You saw more lichen, more clan graffiti, more body-carving, and much, much bigger clubs being dragged around. It hadn't always been like this. Things had loosened up a lot in the last ten years or so. Dwarfs and trolls as races would never be chums, but the city stirred them together, and it had seemed to Vimes that they had managed to get along with no more than surface abrasions. Now the melting pot was full of lumps again. God's damn ham-crusher! Vimes itched to arrest him. Technically he was doing nothing wrong, but that was no barrier to a copper who knew his business. He could certainly get him under behaviour likely to cause a breach of the peace. Veterinari had been against it, though. He'd said it had only inflamed the situation, but how much worse could it get? Vimes closed his eyes and recalled that little figure, dressed in heavy black leather robes and hooded so that he would not commit the crime of seeing daylight. A little figure, but with big words. He remembered 
Beware of the troll, trust him not. Turn him from your door, he is nothing, a mere accident of forces, unwritten, unclean, the mineral world's pale, jealous echo of living, thinking creatures. In his head a rock, in his heart a stone. He does not build, he does not delve, he neither plants nor harvests. His nascence was a deed of theft, and everywhere he drags his club he steals. When not thieving, he plans theft. The only purpose in his miserable life is its ending, relieving from the wretched rock his all-too-heavy burden of thought. I say this in sadness. To kill the troll is no murder. At its very worst, it is an act of charity. It was about that time that the mob had broken into the hall. That was how much worse it could be. Vimes blinked at the newspaper again, this time seeking anything that dared to suggest people in Ankh-Morpork still lived in the real world. Oh, damn! He got up and hurried down the stairs where Cheery practically cowered at his thundering approach. Did we know about this? he demanded, thumping the paper down on the occurrences ledger. Know about what, sir? said Cheery nervously. Vimes prodded a short, illustrated article on page four, his finger stabbing at the page. See that, he growled. That pea-brained idiot at the post office has only gone and issued a Coombe Valley stamp. The dwarf looked nervously at the article. Eh, uh, two stamps, sir, she said. Vimes looked closer. He hadn't taken in much of the detail before the red mist descended. Oh, yes, two stamps. They were very nearly identical. They both showed Coombe Valley, a rocky area ringed by mountains. They both showed the battle. But in one, little figures of trolls were pursuing dwarfs from right to left, and in the other, dwarfs were chasing trolls from left to right. Coombe Valley, where the trolls ambushed the dwarfs and the dwarfs ambushed the trolls. Vimes groaned. Pick your own stupid history, a snip at ten pence, highly collectible. The Coombe Valley Memorial Issue, he read. But we don't want them to remember it, we want them to forget it. It's only stamps, sir, said Cheery. I mean, there's no law against stamps. There ought to be one against being a bloody fool. If there was, sir, we'd be on overtime every day, said Cheery, grinning. Vimes relaxed a little. Yep and no one could build cells fast enough. Remember the cabbage-scented stamp last month? Send your expatriate sons and daughters the familiar odour of home. They actually caught fire if you put too many of them together. I still can't get the smell out of my clothes, sir. There are people living hundred miles away who can't, I reckon. What do we do with the bloody things in the end? I put them in number four evidence locker and left the key in the lock, said Cheery. But Nobby Nobs always steals anything that— uh, Vimes began. That's right, sir, said Cheery happily. I haven't seen them for weeks. There was a crash from the direction of the canteen, followed by shouting. Something in Vimes, perhaps the very part of him that had been waiting for the first shoe, propelled him across the office, down the passage, and to the canteen's doorway at a speed that left dust spiralling on the floor. What met his eyes was a tableau in various shades of guilt. One of the trestle tables had been knocked over. Food and cheap tinware were strewn across the floor. On one side of the mess was Troll Constable Micah, currently being held between Troll Constables Blue John and Schist. On the other was Dwarf Constable Breakenshield, currently being lifted off the ground by probably human Corporal Nobs and definitely human Constable Haddock. There were watchmen at the other tables too, all caught in the act of rising, and, in the silence, audible only to the fine-tuned ears of a man searching for it, was the sound of hands pausing an inch away from the weapon of choice and very slowly being lowered. "'All right,' said Vimes in the ringing vacuum. "'Who's going to be the first to tell me a huge whopper? Corporal Nobbs?' "'Well, Mr. Vimes,' said Nobby Nobbs, dropping the mute break and shield to the floor, "'Eh, uh, break and shield here, picked up Marcus.' Yeah, picked up Marcus Mug by mistake, as it were, and we all spotted that and jumped up. Eh, uh, yes, Nobby speeded up now, the really steep fibs now successfully negotiated, and that's how the table got knocked over, cause... 
and here Nobby's face assumed an expression of virtuous imbecility that was really quite frightening to see, he'd have really hurt himself if he'd taken a swig of troll coffee, sir. Inside, Vimes sighed. As stupid, lame excuses went, it wasn't actually a bad one. For one thing, it had the virtue of being completely unbelievable. No dwarf would come close to picking up a mug of troll espresso, which was a molten chemical stew with rust sprinkled on the top. Everyone knew this, just as everyone knew that Vimes could see that Brakenshield was holding an axe over his head, and Constable Blue John was still frozen in the act of wrenching a club off Micah. And everyone knew, too, that Vimes was in the mood to sack the first bloody idiot to make a wrong move, and probably anyone standing near him. "'That's what it was, was it?' said Vimes. "'So it wasn't, as it might be, someone making a nasty remark about a fellow officers and others of his race, perhaps? Some little bit of stupidity to add to the wad of it that's floating around the streets right now?' "'Oh, nothing like that, sir,' said Nobby. "'Just one of them... things.' "'Nearly a nasty accident, was it?' said Vimes. "'Yes, sir. Well,' We don't want any nasty accidents, do we, Nobby? No, sir. None of us want nasty accidents, I expect, said Vimes, looking around the room. Some of the constables he was grimly glad to see were sweating with the effort of not moving. And it's so easy to have em when your mind isn't firmly on the job, understood? There was a general muttering. I can't hear you. This time there were audible riffs on the theme of, yes, sir. Right snapped Vimes. Now get out there and keep the peace, because as sure as hell you won't do it in here. He directed a special glare at Constables Brakenshield and Micah, and strode back to the main office where he almost bumped into Sergeant Angua. Sorry, sir, I was just fetching, she began. I sorted it out, don't worry, said Vimes, but it was that close. Some of the dwarfs are really on edge, sir, I can smell it, said Angua. You and Fred Colon, said Vimes. I don't think it's just the ham-crusher thing, sir. It's something dwarfish. Well, I can't beat it out of them. And just when the day couldn't get any worse, I've got to interview a damned vampire. Too late, Vimes saw the urgent look in Angua's eyes. Ah, I think that would be me, said a small voice behind him. Fred Colon and Nobby Nobbs, having been rousted from their lengthy coffee break, proceeded gently up Broadway, giving the old uniform an airing. What with one thing or another, it was probably a good idea not to be back at the yard for a while. They walked like men who had all day. They did have all day. They had chosen this particular street because it was busy and wide, and you didn't get too many trolls and dwarfs in this part of town. The reasoning was faultless. In lots of areas right now, Dwarfs or trolls were wandering around in groups, or, alternatively, staying still in groups in case any of those wandering bastards tried any trouble in this neighbourhood. There had been little flare-ups for weeks. In these areas, Nobby and Fred considered, there wasn't much peace, so it was a waste of effort to keep what little was left of it, right? You wouldn't try keeping sheep in places where all the sheep got eaten by wolves, right? It stood to reason. It would look silly. Whereas in big streets like Broadway there was lots of peace which obviously needed keeping. Common sense told them this was true. It was as plain as the nose on your face, and especially the one on Nobby's face. Bed business, said Colon as they strolled. I've never seen the dwarfs like this. It always gets tricky, Sarge, just before Combe Valley Day, Nobby observed. Yeah, but hem crushers really got them on the boil and no mistake. Colon removed his helmet and wiped his brow. He told Sam about May Water, and he was impressed. Well, he would be, Nobby agreed. It would impress anyone. Colon tapped his nose. There's a storm coming, Nobby. Not a cloud in the sky, Sarge, Nobby observed. Figure of speech, Nobby. Figure of speech. Colon sighed and glanced sideways at his friend. When he continued, it was in the hesitant tones of a man with something on his mind. As a matter of fact, Nobby, there was another matter about which, per se, I wanted to speak to you about. Man to, um, there was only the tiniest hesitation, man. Yes, Sarge? Now, you know, Nobby, that I've always taken a personal interest in your moral well-being, what with you having no dad to put your feet on the proper path. 
That's right, Sarge. I would have strayed no end if you hadn't, said Nobby virtuously. Well, you knew you was telling me about that girl you're going out with. What was her name now? Tawny, Sarge. That's the, uh, bunny. The one you said worked in a club, right? That's right. Is there a problem, Sarge? said Nobby anxiously. Not as such. But when you was on your day off last week, me and Constable Jolson got called into the Pussycat Club, Nobby, you know? There's pole dancing and table dancing and stuff of that nature. And you know old Mrs. Spudding what lives in New Cobblers? Oh, Mrs. Spudding with the wooden teeth, Sarge. The very same, Nobby, said Colon magisterially. She does the cleaning in there. And it appears that when she come in at eight o'clock in the morning a.m., with no one else about Nobby, well, I hardly like to see this, but it appears she took it into her head to have a twirl on the pole. They shared a moment of silence as Nobby ran this image in the cinema of his imagination and hastily consigned much of it to the cutting-room floor. But she must be seventy-five, Sarge! he said, staring at nothing in fascinated horror. A girl can dream, Nobby, a girl can dream. Of course, she forgot she wasn't as limber as she used to be, plus she got her foot caught in her long jaws and panicked when her dress fell over her head. She was in a bad way when the manager came in, having been upside down for three hours and with her teeth fallen out on the floor. Wouldn't let go of the pole, too. Not a pretty sight. I trust I do not have to draw you a picture. Come the finish, precious Jolson had to rip the pole out top and bottom and we slid her off. That girl's got the muscles of a troll, Nobby, I'll swear it. And then, Nobby, when we was bringing her round behind the scenes, this young lady wearing two sequins and a bootlace comes up and says she's a friend of yours. I did not know where to put my face. You're not supposed to put it anywhere, Sarge. They throw you out for that sort of thing, observed Nobby. You never told me she was a pole dancer, Nobby, Fred wailed. Don't say it like that, Sarge. Nobby sounded a little hurt. This is modern times, and she's got class, Tawny has. She even brings her own pole, no hanky-panky. But, I mean, showing her body off in lewd ways, Nobby, dancing around without her vest and practically no drawers on. Is that any way to behave? Nobby considered this deep metaphysical question from various angles. Eh, uh, yes, he ventured. Anyway, I thought you were still walking out with Verity Pushpram. That's a handy little seafood store she runs, Colon said, sounding as though he was pleading a case. Oh, Amred's a nice girl if you catch her on a good day, Sarge, Nobby conceded. You mean those days when she doesn't tell you to bugger off and chases you down the street throwing crabs at you? Exactly those days, Sarge. But good or bad, you can never get rid of the smell of fish. And her eyes are too far apart. I mean, it's hard to get a relationship going with a girl who can't see you if you stand right in front of her. He shouldn't think Tawny can see you if you're up close either, Colon burst out. She's nearly six feet tall and she's got a bosom like... Well, she's a big girl, Nobby. Fred Colon was at a loss. Nobby Nobs and a dancer with big hair, a big smile and general bigotry. Look upon this picture, and on this, it did your head in, it really did. He struggled on. She told me, Nobby, that she'd been Miss May on the centrefold of Girls, Giggles and Garters. Well, I mean, what do you mean, Sarge? Anyway, she wasn't just Miss May, she was the first week in Groon as well, Nobby pointed out. It was the only way they had room. Uh, Will, I ask you, Fred floundered, is a girl who displays her body for money the kind of way for a copper? Ask yourself that. For the second time in five minutes, what passed for Nobby's face wrinkled up in deep thought. "'Is this a trick question, Sarge?' he said at last. "'Cause I know for a fact that Haddock has got that picture pinned up in his locker, and every time he opens the door, he goes, "'Four, will you look at the—' "'How did you meet her, anyway?' said Colon quickly. "'What? Oh, our eyes met when I shoved an I.O.U. in her garter, Sarge,' said Nobby happily. "'And she hadn't just been hit on the head or something?' I don't think so, Sarge. She's not ill, is she? said Fred Colon, exploring every likelihood. No, Sarge. Are you sure? She says perhaps we're two halves of the same soul, Sarge, said Nobby dreamily. Colon stopped with one foot raised above the pavement. He stared 
at nothing, his lips moving. Sarge? said Nobby, puzzled by this. Yeah, yeah, said Colon, more or less to himself. Yeah, I can see that. Not the same stuff in each half, obviously, sort of, uh, sieved. The foot landed. I say, 